0: Now, last week, if you remember, we have dealt with the subject of the brick wall that exists between God and man, and we've seen how the first brick in the wall has been removed. The first brick, and you remember this diagram, of course, was sin. Last week, we dealt with redemption. To recap, there are two Greek words for redemption. One means a ransom. Jesus paid a ransom for each one sitting here tonight. The second one is the word exagorezo, which means to buy out of the marketplace, or to buy out of the slave market. And you remember how each one of us is a slave to sin until Jesus died on the cross, and until, through personal faith in him, we receive the work that he did for us. And we suddenly become free, and those who are with the sunsets free are free indeed. Now, redemption is enough to completely remove this top stone. We could now take the top stone completely away, and there'd be nothing left there except Jesus standing. But, uh, tonight I'm going to deal with another way that the top stone was removed, and that way is called atonement. In fact, at the end of tonight, we'll have the two top tiers completely removed, and there'll be nothing there except the person of the Lord Jesus. And later on, we're going to see all the others removed too, and they'll all be replaced by Jesus, right the way down. Tonight we're dealing with sin again, from the aspect of atonement, and we're dealing with the second one, the penalty of sin. Now atonement is simply this, that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Millions and millions and millions and millions of sin were put on the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. I'm not talking about (coughs) Adam's sin, the One that he committed when he fell, I'm not talking about your sins, I'm talking about the sins of the whole world. I'm talking about the sins that were committed in fifteen forty three about the sins that were committed in seventeen sixty two about the sins that were committed in nineteen seventy four about the sins that will be committed in nineteen seventy five I'm talking about the sins of the whole world from the beginning to the very end of time. Jesus knew every sin and atonement states the fact that he died for the sins of the whole world for as we read in John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he gave his only son only begotten son now it's an amazing thing but because Jesus was omniscient he knew before eternity before time began in eternity past every sin that you will commit in your life and when he died on the cross, he died for every sin that it is possible for you to commit. Let's have a look at a few passages to begin this week, where we see this. 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 14. 2 Corinthians, 5, 14. And I think we're going to see something, perhaps, that you've never thought of tonight. That Jesus not only died for the sins of believers... He also died for the sins of unbelievers. He suffered for the sins of your unbelieving neighbors, your unbelieving family. He died for the sins of the whole world. 2 Corinthians 5:14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead. The word judge there is conclude, because we thus conclude that if, and he did, if, and he did, one, Jesus, died for all, then were all dead. Now that's an amazing statement. You see, every single person was taken care of by the cross of Jesus, therefore we know that every single person had a problem that Jesus had to take on the cross, and that problem was death. We were all dead. I'm not talking necessarily about physical death, I'm talking about spiritual death. Every single person that's born into this world is spiritually dead. Therefore, Christ died for all. Now, there's a simple statement of it. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 begin by going through a review of the Bible. 1 Timothy 2, 4. And this is a very good verse to learn and to know. Who will have all men to be saved. There isn't a person living on the earth today that the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't want saved. His Holy Spirit is battling with every single person on the face of this planet, whether they live in Java or Taiwan or in the middle of the desert in the Atacama, or right in the middle of London, or right in the middle of Chichester. It doesn't matter. There isn't one person that Jesus doesn't desire to be saved, and therefore there isn't one person that he... uh, that his death didn't atone for completely. Here it is. Who will have all men to be saved, and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Now, notice the all. This is what we're looking for. He died for the sins of all men. Let's have a look at another. 1 Timothy 4 verse 10. And here we come to a phrase, and I'm going to deal with it in much more detail in another tape when we deal with the unforgivable sin. When we come on to that, then we're going to understand this much more fully. Verse 10. For therefore we both labour and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Saviour of all men, especially of those who believe. When Jesus died on the cross, and I'll repeat it, he died for the sins of all men. Now, he he was judged for their sins as well. There isn't a person around us whose sins were not taken on the cross. That's why salvation is open to all. Because I can go up to anyone and say, Look, I don't care how much of a sinner you are. Jesus died for your sins and they've been paid for you are a free man if only you'll believe it you can tell your neighbor so you think you're so bad but Jesus knew how bad you were going to be and he paid for your sins already that's the good news there isn't one unbeliever in the world today whose sins haven't been covered by Jesus but it needs personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ we saw last week if you remember how we were members of the slave market and Jesus had come in and said you're free. I buy the lot of you. You're absolutely free to go. And there were some who said, No, I don't want to be free. And they didn't receive it. Here it says, Who is the saviour of all men. As I said, He has saved us from our sins. Every man's sins have been judged on the cross of Jesus. The issue is not a man's sins. The issue is, What think ye of Christ? The true gospel message is found in John 3:18 3, John 318 He that believeth on him, Jesus, is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's the gospel message. In the last judgment the books will be opened, but the book that decides whether you are going to be saved or not is the Lamb's Book of Life. And he will say, is that man's name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? If a person has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, his name's in that book, and you will be allowed through. If your name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, it's because you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that will exclude you from heaven. The issue is not your sins. It's not the sins you committed yesterday, today, or in the future. The issue is, what think ye of Jesus? That's the issue. That's the gospel issue. We are not entitled to go up to people saying, you see, what a bad life you've led." That's not the issue. The issue is, the only person who can save you from that bad life is Jesus, who died for your sins. And the only way of salvation is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. Acts 4, verse 12. You see, very important this is. The issue is Jesus. It's stated again in verse 36 of John 3. Verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abideth on him. And the word sin is not mentioned in the passage. Now, so far, so good. Let's just back that up, shall we, with two scriptures. 1 John 2, verse 2. This is always a surprise for people when they come to this little verse. 1 John 2, and verse 2. I'm going into this in much more detail in another Bible study. And he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Yes, it's true. Not only believer's sins were taken on the cross. Unbeliever's sins were taken on the cross. That means no man is locked by his sins into hell. It's whether you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ or not. That's the issue. There's an even more surprising verse, actually, in um, 2 Peter, chapter 2, chapter 2 and verse 1. This is an amazing verse. The second letter of Peter, chapter 2 and verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people. Even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. You see, in this time there were groups of believers, and some believers had started listening to doctrines of demons, and they were started started spreading the most terrible lies about, and started teaching them. It's an amazing thing to know that most of the heresies that began in the early church began through believers who got out of fellowship. But there were other people as well who were never believers, who came into the meetings and started spreading false rumors and false doctrine around. But notice what it says, even denying the law that brought them. You see, Jesus died even for the false teachers. Jesus died even for those who were going around causing trouble in the church. Jesus died for the sins of all the people who persecuted the church. Now, you can imagine, some people undoubtedly put many Christians to death. Jesus knew they were going to do it, and he died for their sins on the cross. This is why I call it unlimited atonement. There isn't one man alive today who can say, well, Jesus didn't die for that sin. Jesus died for every sin. There's no person today who can say, my sins are too bad for God to forgive, for God to forgive. Because he knew before time began that you were going to commit those sins. And when he planned salvation, he made it big enough to cover your worst sins. That's an amazing ring. It's super. This is atonement. Atonement says, unlimited atonement says, he died for every single sin that you can think of. He died for every sin that's going to be committed in ten years if Jesus hasn't come by then. You don't know what sins you'll be committing in ten years. You don't know what sins you're going to be committing tomorrow, though I'm sure you've got a few in mind. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus has died for every single (laughs) sin. Now, it's an amazing thing. It's fantastic. This is what I mean. Unlimited atonement. Unlimited atonement. That's what it's about. Now, the word atonement is actually never used in the New Testament. There is one uh, passage in Romans 5 which is translated atonement, but it's a mistranslation. should be reconciliation. Never used in the New Testament. It's an Old Testament word. And I've written here the word ah, kafar. K-A-P-H-A-R. It's the word atonement. It also has another meaning, which we're going to see. KAPHAR. K-A-P-H-A-R. And it's the word atonement. Uh, To find this other meaning, could we turn, please, to Genesis, chapter 6? Genesis, chapter 6. I love Genesis, the seedbed of the Bible. It's got every single um, truth in it, in some measure. the story of the flood. Noah's Ark and the flood. This is fact, by the way. Noah's Ark really did exist. He really did get every animal into it. And if ever a person comes up to you and says, how could they get all the animals into that space? You just have to say to them, then how big was it? And of course, most of them have never read the story and can't tell you how big it was. And then you can... uh, Present them with the facts. We will have a Bible study on Noah's ark one day. Now I'm going to begin verse 14. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. I love the word ark. Uh, The word ark in Hebrew uh, means a chest in which you keep valuable things. And the ark was designed by God to keep his most precious things, Noah and his family, who were all believers. There is no- nothing more precious to God than a believer. And so he made a chest, a jewel box, in which to keep them. There it is. To us, it's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our ark. And notice what happens. These believers were put inside the ark and kept safe. We are put in Christ. In Christ Jesus. We are fully identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it says in Colossians 3.3, 3, Our lives are hid with Christ in God. They're hidden inside. And here was Noah and his family building the ark. Now, most of you know the background to this. The men on the earth had become particularly evil. For a hundred and twenty years, Noah preached the gospel faithfully. The only people he saw saved were members of his family. No one else. Perhaps that should teach us a lesson about whether God is going to save our families. No one else would listen. And after one hundred and twenty years, God said... This wickedness has got to stop. And he decided to flood the earth with water. To preserve the believers, he built a jewel box. This was a special jewel box because it was a floatable one, which is marvellous. Here it is. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. Now, you know what uh, pitch is, don't you? It's this black hot, smelly material that is sometimes put on roads. It's rather like tar. A very thick, very volatile type of liquid. In Hebrew, the word for pitch is kofar. Kofar. K-O-P-H-A-R. Pitch. And the verb from kofar, in other words, to pitch something or to cover something with pitch, is the word kafar. These two words are related you see, and kafar is translated 70 times atonement. It could be translated to cover with pitch. There's the word. Kafar, atonement, or to cover with pitch. Now, let's see what he's saying. Make the an ark, pitch it within, and without, with pitch. In other words, cover it, <laughs> atone it, inside and outside, with this black material. It's a picture of At the atonement of our sins. You see, had Noah made the ark of wood, wherever the wood joined, water would have got in. So God decided to cover it with pitch to make it watertight. Your salvation is today watertight. Do you know that? The waters of judgment cannot get into your salvation. Noah was inside the ark and he was safe. You are inside Christ and you're safe. Noah was safe as long as the judgment lasted. You are safe as long as judgment lasts. That is why you are eternally saved. Now, why was Noah so secure inside? There are several reasons why he was. And I think it's important to get these down. Number one, first of all, because God shut him in. Genesis 7, verse 16. Genesis chapter 7, and verse 16. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God hath commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. There it is. Now, some people imagine that Noah sort of had strings attached to the door, and when the time came, he pulled on the strings and the door went up. But anyone knows that if he had done that, water would have got in through the join of the door and the ark. And that wouldn't have been watertight. So God said, No, I'm going to close the door. God shut the door and he pitched it over. You, your salvation does not depend on you. The moment you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, God shut the door and he pitched it over. Nor do you keep the door closed. He keeps the door closed. Now, what an amazing thing. That's why you cannot lose your salvation. God has closed the door and there's nothing you can do. You cannot get out of salvation. Sorry to disappoint those people here. Who were planning on it you cannot get out of your salvation god has closed the door you are in christ and you will not get out again for none shall pluck them out of my hand he said and when he said none he meant none another reason the second reason why noah was safe inside because god had designed the ark that's the second reason god had designed it god knew exactly the water pressure that would be exerted as the fountains of the deep, verse 4. He knew exactly to the exact square meter the water pressure that would press down on the roof when it started raining. He knew the stresses and strains that would attack that ark. So he designed an ark that could withstand it. And your salvation was planned by God. He knew every pressure, every problem, every trial that you were going to come against. He knew every sin you were capable of committing, and he designed a salvation big enough to take the strain. Praise Jesus. That's another reason why you cannot lose your salvation, and it's quite a good one. The third reason why you cannot lose your salvation is this, because it's covered with pitch. You have been completely atoned for. Every sin you commit yesterday, today... Or forever in the future. Jesus died for those sins. This is unlimited atonement. He covered it completely. And the fourth reason why he was safe was a very simple one because God was inside the ark with him. Now, how do I know that? Genesis 7, verse 1. Genesis 7, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. Now, you see, yes, you've got it. If you're inside the house and someone knocks at your door, you open the door and you say, come in. If you're outside and they knock at the door, you say, oh, do go in. There's a difference between come in and go in, you see. And Jesus, the Lord, didn't say go in. He said, come in. He was right in there with them. Just like when the three children were put in the fiery furnace. Who was there? The Lord Jesus. I see a fourth one. And his appearance like the Son of God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar said. That was before he'd become a believer, of course. He saw Jesus in the midst of the trouble. That's why you're safe. Jesus is inside the ark with you. He is the ark and he's inside there as well. There is no trouble that affects you that God doesn't know about. You can imagine that ark. It was buffeted pretty well. You can just imagine the waters coming on either side. It was more like a submarine, as most of you know. It was buffeted on one side, buffeted on the other, from underneath, on top. It must have taken a pretty bad shaking. The Lord God was inside with Noah. I suspect they were too engrossed in him to even bother about the problems outside. If you've got problems and you are very conscious of these problems, it might be that you're not fully yet conscious of Jesus. The more conscious you become of Jesus, the less conscious you become of your problems. You see? Now that's why Noah was saved. The word atonement means you are completely saved. But as the covering, the atonement of the ark, kept the waters of judgment back, so you will not be judged for your sins. No person in this room is going to be judged for their sins because Jesus has already been judged and even under our law once the penalty has been paid for a sin you cannot be tried for those sins again and if Jesus died for your sins you can't die for them now how that affects believers who get out of fellowship we'll also see in a later Bible study and it's an important one but that's why it says in Romans 8 1 there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus And the word condemnation is the word judgment. There is no judgment for those in Christ Jesus. That's what atonement states. And that's why, with confidence, I can take my felt pen and I can completely knock out the first stone. It was a barrier, but it isn't anymore. Two things have removed it. Redemption and atonement have removed that barrier. It's not there anymore. Jesus is standing in its place. Well, that's one out of six. Down we go. The next <coughs> brick in the war is this one. The penalty of sin. The penalty for sin. There it is. Now, penalty, I suppose, is uh, the word wage. Or could be. You see, all of us here work hard for our wages. At the end of the week, after doing your job, you expect to be paid what you've earned. Many painters spend hours and hours and hours working hard, not for money, but so that at the end they've got what they deserve, a masterpiece, a work of art. Many people stay for hours writing, so that at the end they've got the perfect novel. I've spent hours Bible studying, not for money so that at the end, I might understand the Word of God. You see, if you work hard, you'll be paid your just rewards. Rewards. The penalty of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That's what it says, of course, as we know, in Romans 6:23. For the wages of sin is death. Every person in this room has committed sin. Every one of you has got an old sin nature therefore, you have wages due to you. The wages were death. And despite the fact that sin had been dealt with, the wages were still coming your way. So Jesus had to take care of it. And now we're ready for Psalm 22, because the answer to the penalty of sin is expiation. Expiation. I'm giving you these terms, by the way, so that if someone comes up to you and asks you, well, what do you think about expiation? You understand what they're talking about. Psalm... 22. Psalm 22. Expiation. E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N. Expiation. And here we get the words of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This was written a thousand years before Jesus died on the cross. This is reported speech written beforehand. A thousand years before Jesus died on the cross, God knew exactly the words that Jesus would use. And he revealed them to David, who wrote them down. This is Jesus speaking. My God is addressed, of course, to God the Father. My God is, as we've seen, addressed to God the Holy Spirit. Why hast thou forsaken me? Now, it's a question Jesus is asking. Why have you turned your back on me? Why aren't you listening to me? Why Why can't I communicate with you? The very words Jesus cried out on the cross. Why had God the Father and God the Holy Spirit gone away from the Lord Jesus as he hang on, hung on the cross? The answer is given actually in verse 3, but thou art holy. Thou art holy. You see, God is absolute righteousness. And when Jesus hung on the cross, the sins of the whole world were put on him. And the holiness of God meant that, he had, that God had to completely withdraw from the Lord Jesus as he was hanging there on the tree of Calvary. Completely withdrew. Let's read on. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. Now the word roaring here is screaming. Jesus screamed on the cross. Now this is uh, truly fantastic. Because Jesus had gone through such trials here on the earth. First of all, he'd been tried (coughs) falsely. Six times he was tried. All of them were a lie, a farce of justice. And you remember that not even the witnesses could agree? They had to abandon the trial so many times because the witnesses could not agree. People lied about him. They called him all sorts of things and not happy with that. They slapped him. They punched him. They taunted him. In fact, Isaiah says that they punched him so much you couldn't recognize his face. His face became puffed up because of the bruises that had been inflicted on the Lord Jesus. Did he scream? He didn't. Not at all. So, they scourged him. And to scourge someone means you've got a whip with thongs of leather. And each leather thong had a bit of bone or a bit of iron in the tip. It was a whip tipped with iron. And they used to take the strongest man in their force and they used to whip and whip and whip until there was only just enough life left in the person for them to be crucified. Jesus went through all that. He was whipped. Did he scream? He did not. They then rubbed salt into the wounds. Did he scream? He didn't. He was then forced to drag his cross along to the hill of Calvary. Did he cry out? He didn't they put nails through his hands and his feet. Cry out? He did not. And for three hours he hung there, as the weight of his body gradually tore the nails through his flesh. Until it was such an effort to breathe on that cross, it took all of his strength to lift himself up for another breath of air. Did he scream? He didn't. But after three hours, something happened that made him cry out in anguish. He roared, he screamed out. Something happened. The earth, because of it, went completely dark for three hours. What was it that caused Jesus to scream out? Pain hadn't caused him to scream out. Not at all. Lies hadn't caused him to scream out. False witnesses hadn't caused him to scream out. False prophesying hadn't caused him to scream out. But halfway through his ordeal on the cross, the sins of the whole world were laid on him. It was your sins that made him scream out. He could take pain. He could take everything else. But when sin, the most dreadful thing that has ever affected man, was laid on Jesus while he hung on that cross, a cry of anguish leapt from his lips. My God, my God! Why hast thou forsaken me? The Holy Spirit and God the Father turned their back on Jesus. In his greatest hour of need, they turned their back. Why? Because they were so righteous, so holy. And there was Jesus with the sins of the whole world laid on him. And that means your sins too. Some people think sin is a very pleasurable thing. Some people take sin very lightly. Jesus felt the effects of that sin. There isn't one person alive on the earth today whose sins were not placed on Jesus. Not one person. There is no sin which you are going to commit tomorrow or the day after that Jesus didn't die for 2,000 years ago on that cross. And it caused him to yell with pain. He yelled out with all his might, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Our sins caused him to yell out. Now I want you to keep the place here. I'm going to show you something most interesting now in John 1919: 19, 19. John 1919. 19. Those of you who've uh, seen the numbers in the Bible before, you'll understand <coughs> this. For those of you who haven't, I'll give you a quick introduction on it: John 1919. 19. Actually, I think we'll read from verse 60. <laughs> verse 60. <clears throat> then delivered he him, therefore, unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew, Gargotha. Why was it the place of the skull? Because Jesus is the head of the body. And here, the head of the body was to be killed. It's called the place of the skull. Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two other with him. On either side, one, and Jesus in the middle. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth. The King of the Jews. Now, John's Gospel is the only one that records the title, Jesus of Nazareth. Literally, it's not Jesus of Nazareth, it's Jesus the Nazarene. And believe it or not, this is the only time this title is used of Jesus in the Bible. There are other phrases where he's called Jesus of Nazareth, other places where he's called Jesus Christ the Nazarene. But this is the only place where he's called Jesus the Nazarene. And there are very, very distinct reasons why. The title over Jesus, what that? Jesus the Nazarene. Now, for those of you who don't know anything about this, the Greeks used their alphabet to count with. They didn't have a different number system as we've got. They used their alphabet. Alpha was one. Beta was 2, Gamma was 3, Delta was 4, and so on. Um, for those of you who, who want to look it up, and to save time now, um, it, in Teach Yourself New Testament Greek, on page 114, they give the full numerical values of the Greek words. It's rather interesting what they write, by the way. It says, Letters were used instead of numbers, in Greek. And then it says, But you need not bother about these. <coughs> That's a shame. We're going to bother about them, because they're very important. Um, Because each Greek letter has a numerical value, we can work out the value of any word simply by replacing each letter by its numerical value and adding them all up. I've written out the title, Jesus the Nazarene, in Greek. There it is, Jesus the Nazarene. I'll hold it up, I'll spell it out for you. Iota, Eta, Sigma, Omicron... Upsilon Sigma, this is really for those people listening on tape. Omicron, nu, alpha, zeta, omega, rho, alpha, iota, omicron, and sigma. There we go. Jesus the Nazarene. Now, what I've done underneath, I've put each value of every letter in. The values, of course, are given in Teach Yourself New Testament Greek, And I've written them underneath, just to give you an example. Here's Jesus, the name of Jesus. Iota is ten. Eta is eight. Sigma is two hundred. Omicron is seventy. Upsilon is four hundred. And Sigma again is two hundred. If we add those together, it comes to the number eight, eight, eight. And every number in the Bible has a meaning. Eight is the number of resurrection. Jesus was 888. Eight, eight. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. Of course, as you'd expect. There it is, Jesus now uh, the Omicron here comes to 70 and the word Nazarene adds up to 1239. Now perhaps you don't know what I'm driving at as yet. Now we've got Jesus is 888. V eight, eight. is 70. Nazarene is one thousand two hundred and thirty-nine. And when you add those all together, if you haven't got this, you can copy it afterwards, they come to the grand total of two thousand one hundred and ninety-seven. For your information, two thousand one hundred and ninety-seven is thirteen times thirteen times thirteen. It's the cube root of thirteen. And in the Bible, the number 13 is, of course, the number for evilness. Evilness. The numbers in the Bible, there are two significant ones, really, as far as we're concerned. Seven is spiritual perfection. Thirteen is evilness. There they are. Those two. Satan has counterfeited this in our day, because people have a lucky number of seven, and an unlucky number of 13. Unlucky for some, you've heard the phrase. It's a counterfeit of the truth in the Word of God. And here it is. The title over Jesus, Jesus the Nazarene, was not 888. It was 131313. To show how appalling that is, there is one other phrase in the Bible that has also got the numerology of 131313. Please would you turn to it quickly? Revelation chapter 12 verse (coughs) 9. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. And this is the passage that has the number 13 times 13 times 13, called the devil and Satan is the other passage that has got 13 times 13 times 13. You see, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he became so sinful. As it's written in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. The reality of your sin was put on Jesus. No wonder the title over him was 13, 13, 13. He became, because of your sins, like a serpent on the cross of Calvary. Not because he was bad. He was the only perfect man who had ever lived. Because you were so bad. You see, your sins have made you totally black before God. And in his grace, and in his love for you, he made Jesus black on the cross. Jesus was white, you were black and he swapped them round. He made Jesus black, that you might become white. He swapped the two. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you are a believer here today, You will not be judged for your sins because Jesus Christ hanging on the cross has already been judged for your sins. He was black on that cross that you might be white for all eternity. And there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved but the name of Jesus. Now there it is. By the way, um, if uh, you quickly turn to Numbers 21, the book of Numbers 21, we'll get the picture of this. Verse (coughs) 7. If you have trouble finding these books, I suggest you get the tape afterwards and then look them up and check them through. In fact, I would suggest that it's a good thing anyway to get the tapes to listen through again. Because I've heard things that have really blessed me the second time through. And it doesn't matter how many times you hear it. It's always good. Verse 7. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Now you see, they had sinned terribly against God. And God had sent serpents serpents into their midst. And the people were dying by the score as, as the serpents bit them. So that finally it brings them to their senses. And they go to Moses and they say, Pray for us that the serpents might be taken away. Now what does God tell him to do? Here it is. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, now fiery, a shining serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, When he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. The word brass, by the way, is our old friend Nakash, which we saw in Genesis chapter 3. It's the original name for the serpent. And here it was. He made a serpent of shining material, brass. And he hung it on a pole. And he lifted it up, and every time people looked, they were saved. from. They were delivered from the venom that had got into their ankles. That's why there's reference made in John 3. Go back again, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. The Bible is one book, (coughs) and is its own (coughs) reference book. John, chapter 3. (coughs) Verse 14. and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. There we are, that's a reference to Numbers 21. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see, these people didn't have to do anything else, they just had to look. They just had to look. All you have to do is look. All you have to do is say, Lord, I believe it. I believe it. Amen. So be it. That's for me. I can't save myself from my sins, but you've done it for me. And just as they were delivered in numbers, you will be delivered today in Chichester. Wonderful. Now there it is. The exact parallel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's what it means. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now let's turn back to Psalm 22 again. And just complete the picture. For the sake of time, could I just go to verse 6? Verse 6. Jesus, this is, again talking. And he says, But I am a worm. A no-man. There are about uh, a dozen words in the Bible for worm. And this was the type of worm, this is very common knowledge. Um, This type of worm was put into a vat with millions of others, and they were crushed up. They were crushed inside that vat. And there was a tap at the bottom, which let out the fluid from inside. And the great thing about it was... It was purple. And this was the most uh, precious type of dye that ever was found anywhere. Purple has always been a difficult colour. In fact, it was only when uh, Sir William Perkins, working in his laboratory in Greenford, um, about 200 years ago, started uh, analysing the colour purple, that he found uh, a, a certain dye which wouldn't run when you washed it. And it was Perkins to whom we owe, in recent times only, a colour purple that actually won't run when you wash it. Purple was a difficult colour, it always was. That's why the kings always used to wear scarlet or purple robes, just to show how rich they were. No one else could afford it. And how? And the dye that was used to dye the fabric was got from millions of these worms. They were a special type of worm. They were crushed. And what came out of them was this beautiful purple dye. And it was used for the garments of kings. When Jesus hung on the cross, now you know what I'm going to say. Out of him came a material which was only fitting for kings. And that's you. You are now priests and kings unto our God. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was a worm on the cross. It says in Hebrews 12, verse 2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame. Who was the joy? You were the joy. He could just visualize you in purple. He could. And he loved you in purple. In the kingly robes. And when he died on the cross, he didn't just atone for your sins. He then covered you with glorious purple <coughs> dye, marking you out forever as a king to himself. Praise the Lord. Colossians 2, verse 14. Colossians 2, verse 14. Actually, we begin with verse 13. We must, be, well, see redemption and atonement again. <coughs> and you, and that means you, and you, being dead in your sins, And the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Do you believe that word? Do you believe that every trespass you have ever committed has been forgiven? Because it says here, all trespasses. And verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinance that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And believe it or not, this is a gambling term in the Greek. Blotting out means cancelling. Blotting out means cancelling. And the phrase, the handwriting of ordinances, is an IOU. It's an IOU. You see, we owed God something. What did we owe him? We owed him the penalty of sin. We were sinners, and we owed God the price for our sins. And we had, in our lifetime, written him an IOU. We were going to pay it when we died. And we would have paid it too, except that Colossians 2.14 tells us that Jesus came and he cancelled the I-O-U. What did he do with it? He took it out of the way and he nailed it. He nailed it to the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid any wages that you owed he paid every penalty you owed God. You owed God absolute righteousness. And because you couldn't pay it, you were going to die. But Jesus paid it for you. It, our gambling debts have been paid. We gambled with sin, and it didn't pay off. But he did. Hallelujah. Now it's a glorious, wonderful thing. And therefore, I can take my felt pen again, and I can cross up another stone. But expiation says... That he's paid the penalty of sin. That's death. On the cross, he bore every one of your sins, and he died in agony for you. He was cut off from God that you might never be cut off from God. That's why we can read with such assurance that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. God planned your salvation before you started living. He knew every eventuality that was going to happen in your life. He planned for them all. Therefore, with confidence, he can write. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And that is God the Father writing to you through God the Holy Spirit. And he says, absolutely nothing. Whatever you can think of, I'm sorry, it can't cut you off. Can Satan cut you off from the love of God? He cannot. Can your life? It cannot. Can your death? It cannot. Can angels? They cannot can circumstances? They cannot. Troubles? No. Tribulations? No. Persecutions? No. You name it, it can't. Absolutely not. Jesus has died on the cross for you. We've got something to celebrate tonight. Because sin's been removed. And the penalty of sin has been removed. The great stumbling blocks have been taken out of the way. They do not apply to any person in this room. He died for the sins of the whole world. And the good news of the gospel is, your sins are forgiven you. I do not judge you. Come to me. By believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have eternal salvation. And once you've got it, you can't lose it.